Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features a conversation with the Fall 2015 Joan Shorenstein Fellows, David Ensor, former Director of Voice of America, Marie Sands, Lima Bureau Chief for AFP, and Paul Wood, Foreign Correspondent for the BBC. Over the hour, the Fellows discuss the recent terrorist attacks in Paris, the media's role in using soft power to counter extremism, and the accuracy of common media narratives about ISIS. There was also discussion of the international refugee crisis and US-Cuba relations. So welcome everybody. I'm uh, Tom Patterson. I'm the acting director of the Shorenstein Center. Uh, we've got so many speakers today that I've been bumped out of the front category. So, uh, But I'm going to get out of the way here. Uh, this is our new tradition. We started it last year, uh, our last brown bag uh, of the semester, and this is it. Uh, we feature the fellows who've been with us for the semester, uh, and we've had the great experience of working with them, talking with them for a couple of months, and uh, we wanted uh, to be able to share their thoughts and wisdom uh, with all of you. Uh, and uh, I've asked each of them to speak for a few minutes, and then we'll open up uh, the conversation. Uh, and let's start with you, David. All right, thank you, Tom. Uh, well, in, in these days right after the, the Paris tragedy, uh, there's an understandable focus on uh, how do we defend ourselves, how, how does the West go on offense against this sort of activity? In other words, on uh, I didn't introduce you. Oh. <laughs> Who am so, I? Who is this? <laughs> so David Enser is one of our uh, Shorenstein Fellows uh, this fall. Uh, David was director of The Voice of America uh, before coming here and uh, also spent uh, a long career in journalism. Uh, Marie Sanders uh, from AFP. Uh, many years with AFP, including five years uh, in Havana uh, as uh, covering Cuba. Uh, and then Paul Wood, uh, who's been with the BBC, who's with the BBC uh, sort of 20 years as a war correspondent, uh, Bosnia, but most recently uh, four years uh, covering the war in Syria, including spending time on the ground in Syria. So. Excuse me for that. No, no problem. Well, I, I was, as I was saying, we, uh, we were all talking about what's the hard power response to what happened in Paris. But, um, but I think the last 15 to 20 years of our history reminds us that uh, hard power alone will not resolve our problems, and it won't resolve this one either. Uh, so uh, I've been focusing my attention while here at Harvard at the Schoenstein Center on the subject that I kind of worked on while in government, which is, comes under the heading that uh, was created by Professor Joseph Nye of this, uh, of this Kennedy School, uh, soft power. And um, let me give you just two quick examples and then focus on the third one, which was the main area that I, that I looked at a little bit longer. I mean, first, um, the State Department has a counter-terror messaging, messaging effort that's overseen by Under, Undersecretary Stengel, where um, a group there and in collaboration with centers in the Arab world Efforts are made to get on every website and chat room that, it, that can be found to, to respond to the recruiting efforts by, by ISIS or Daesh, um, uh, where they're trying to pull in young Muslims from this country, from France, from Germany, from the UK and elsewhere, to be their cannon fodder or their suicide bombers. Um, 
that effort is, uh, as I understand it, has, has a budget that is in the single-digit millions, and I would just argue that it ought to be about 100 times larger than it is. Um, another example is public diplomacy effort, efforts in the, in the Muslim world. While I was, prior to being VOA director, I was, um, I was at the embassy in uh, Kabul, Afghanistan. One of the things that we funded there uh, was an effort which we sort of, um, we labeled amongst ourselves mullahs on airplanes. But th what, th what it was was an effort to get young mullahs and imams from Afghanistan in groups to go to the great centers of Muslim learning, like in uh, Cairo, like Jakarta, other places around the world where they could meet with um, serious, high-level, moderate clerics and be reminded that Islam is a great world religion um, of, of peace and that the narrow uh, murderous sect that the Taliban was advocating that they all be part of was a cul-de-sac and not, um, not, not really part of this great religion that they should be so proud to be part of. So that's the kind of public diplomacy effort I think we should be much more seriously working on. But the third area, and the one that's close to my heart, um, is the area of journalism. <coughs> the best answer to propaganda is not more propaganda. It's truth. And the U.S. is, but should be even more than it is, communicating and engaging global audiences uh, with truthful, honest journalism. That's the mission of The Voice of America, which was founded back in 1942, and first broadcast in German said, the news may be good, the news may be bad, we will tell you the truth. And let's face it, in 1942 the news was bad for quite a while. German victories one after another were what VOA reported in the early days. In the 1970s there was a battle with the Nixon White House over how VOA should cover Vietnam and Watergate. And the outcome in 1976 was a law passed, the law of the land, the VOA charter, um, a Republican senator proposed it, under which VOA was told, you're going to report with the goals of objectivity, balance, comprehensiveness. So since then, VOA's covered Abu Ghraib, Edward Snowden's revelations about NSA surveillance, the anger over police killings of young black men, showing that this country is highly imperfect, but grapples with its challenges in a serious way. Um, but instead of looking for resources to take advantage of this incredible digital communications revolution that is underway right now, that is opening up so many new ways of communicating with people. Um, what Washington has tended to be doing in the years that I was director and since then is instead to, first of all, cut the budgets in real terms each year and to resurrect an old debate over whether VOA should be journalism or should be propaganda. And there have been, I won't go into the details, we can, I can go into them if you want to, but um, a series of attempts to turn VOA into a propaganda operation by, by law, and to put it inside the State Department, some have proposed, most recently an official at the Broadcasting Board of Governors, which is the agency under which VOA sits, has proposed that everything VOA does and its sister agencies should be looked at through the prism of countering violent extremism, a laudable policy goal, but not journalism. Advocacy is what that is. So, uh, you know, in the digital age, when there's a cacophony of voices out there, there are an increasing number of people who argue, look, to cut through the, the fog, you've got to have a point of view, you've got to advocate. Um, 
Uh, I have a friend, another fellow former ABC News correspondent, Jim Laurie, who um, teaches at Hong Kong University and, and is now a consultant for CCTV, which is one of the, one of the new uh, uh, you know, state organizations, Chinese organization, that has taken the advocacy route as opposed to the route that the BOA and the old BBC have taken. And he says the days are gone when there was that dedicated audience that would tune into the BBC World Service of the old VOA and say, ah, this is where we get the truth. Instead, he says, the job of a, a consumer now is to listen to as much of the spin as possible and then make a judgment. Well, um, the BBC World Service has an audience of over 300 million people, and they do that by trying to be impartial. Um, while here at the Shorenstein Center, I've been kind of looking at the numbers and the, and the picture as to these two different models. Um, and just yesterday, VOA announced um, a substantial increase in its audience, its global annual announcement. Uh, it's, it now has an audience of 188 million people a week. I mentioned that VOA, that the BBC World Service has 300 million a week. How does that compare with the advocacy channels? That's one of the things I looked at here. I looked at RT, for example, the Russia Today channel. Uh, they've spent about $2 billion on RT, the Kremlin has, since starting it. Um, its current budget, we think, may be about twice VOA's $200 million budget. Uh, it has a claim of a 630 million person audience worldwide. Um, its coverage, well, after the Malaysian air shootdown, RT had a new conspiracy theory every, every news cycle, just about. Uh, but one, none of the conspiracy theories, they said it could have been the Ukrainian this, that, the other. Could have been the CIA, could have been that, but never Russia, never Russia. Um, we got a hold of a document, I'm not claiming that we exclusively did, but because it's out there, but uh, that was leaked by employees at RAI Novosti, which shows that the 630 million claim is only a claim of reach. In other words, it's not the audience, it's the potential audience. So what's the audience? Well, RT doesn't even make the Nielsen ratings in the United States, which means it doesn't even have 30,000 households. Um, in the UK, they had, well, I have good numbers that we found, they had about 120,000 viewers before Crimea. Um, within the weeks after Crimea, that dropped to 90,000. That's a tiny audience in the UK, and it's now it's even smaller. Or look briefly, I'm almost done here, at CCTV. Uh, the 2013 audience data in Kenya that we have, um, because Africa is a place that China is really pushing to have an influence shows that uh, while 52% of Kenyans watched a local station called Citizen TV and 17% watched CNN and 7% watched the BBC, 2% watched CCTV. Um, the, the, the advocacy route that CCTV has taken, therefore, doesn't appear to be drawing the kind of audiences that it would like to. So in summary, I, I think we should stick by the First Amendment and keep VOA independent. Uh, that the United States should be putting more effort and resources into exporting honest journalism, as well as counter-terror messaging by the State Department and others, and public diplomacy efforts aimed at hearts and minds uh, in the Muslim world. And um, I'm reminded of something that Professor Nye, because he's so nearby, I talked to him for this, uh, said to me uh, when I talked to him about it. He said, look, I'm a former Assistant Secretary of Defense, so I'm obviously in favor of the defense budget. But look, this country has its proportions all wrong. We should focus more on soft power. And the most powerful form that I know of is honest journalism. Thank you. Thank you. Marie. Uh, so as uh, Tom was saying, um, I came here also to work on Cuba, and where I was a correspondent for over four years. 
uh, previously I've been working uh, as a correspondent in other countries in uh, Latin America and Africa. And of course, uh, to talk about Cuba today seems really far away from Paris, which is my city. So I try to think about some link about all these things, which is difficult to find. But um, basically, and it's, uh, it's actually very simple. Uh, by working on the normalization of uh, the United States in Cuba, um, one realizes that it represents an acceptance, finally, that old policies of uh, 50 years uh, simply do not work. And uh, um, even perhaps they're wrong to begin with. And I don't know who said it because it has been attributed to so many people, but the definition of insanity is doing something over and over and expecting the same results. So the fact that the negotiations took place, that it was supported by, let's say, the editorials of the New York Times, that the negotiators who were part of the secret negotiations were all under 40 years old, very young, uh, shows that, you know, it's time to move on and, uh, and let the, the, the present uh, be there, including for the United States. So the, the violence and horror of what happened in Paris is also perhaps uh, a signal to think uh, differently for the younger generations and um, let the old um, approaches, let's say, uh, of massive violence, uh, you know, go into another direction, perhaps, because these talks of massive violence uh, only give rise to more massive violence. And the, the, the issue of the, the horrors of uh, Daesh, as we say in French, uh, uh, the, the atrocities committed and all that uh, are horrible, yes. But also it shows uh, that there is a, really a problem. Uh, I, I would talk particularly about the French society, but uh, I think it's the same for other European countries. To, to see the, that the extreme alienation of, of French-born, uh, UK-born, Belgian-born uh, citizens uh, who are looking backward not only to their parents but to their grandparents' and great-great-grandparents' belief in embracing something that could be some sort of medi medieval mythology uh, can think that that will bring them uh, respect to justice and... Uh, eternal bliss in paradise with a thousand virgins. I mean, how did they get there? I think that is really a question that one should ask. And um, then I think it, it is the role of the media and the public policy makers to, to come up with new ideas to, to, to make peace and or address the problems which are not new of uh, everything you want to name, uh, underdevelopment, uh, alienation, racism, uh, that fuels those conflicts. And uh, I will end as I started with the attacks on Paris, because perhaps that, is, uh, that could be an example in a way, uh, that in midst of the horror, um, the, the generosity, the solidarity of people, 
and particularly the young people in Paris who were basically the brunt of the massacre because the majority of them were under 30 years old, uh, showed such a such um, solidarity and a, and, a, and a faith in one another in a way by creating all these movements on, on social uh, media to open up their doors to strangers in the middle of the night where everybody was stranded in Paris and the city was under siege. Um, so basically that's, you know, I think what we have to look at, that the future are the, are the young people who are always more creative, idealistic uh, than one can think. And of course they have all these tools now like uh, social media, which obviously didn't exist uh, earlier. So I won't be the first one to quote uh, Albert Camus because the dean of this prestigious Kennedy School quoted it yesterday, but uh, I think it's uh, The Plague is a great novel about precisely these this metaphors about evil, Nazism, fascism. And um, so Albert Camus refers to the true healers, and so I hope that, you know, there will be more generations of healers that uh, will allow perhaps the, the world to get better. This might be very philosophical, idealistic, but I want to believe that. Thank you. Paul. Sure. Thanks. I'll try to be brief so we can get to questions. Um, ever since Paris, I've taken to flipping over my laptop as soon as I wake up and reading all the commentary. So if you remember your Alice in Wonderland, it's a bit like the Red Queen. I find myself believing six impossible things before breakfast. Uh, these impossible things are drawn from left and right and from all sides of the debate about what to do about ISIS. But here are the six things, most impossible things. <coughs> One, this is a clash of civilizations. No, it isn't. There are a billion and a half Muslims in the world, and most of them don't want to kill us. Uh, I was talking to a Muslim friend of mine yesterday who said he can no longer turn on the radio or television he feels like, I guess, a Japanese citizen would have done just before they were all interned here in the Second World War. He feels under siege. This is a small victory for ISIS. ISIS are a minority within a minority. Second impossible thing, this is an existential struggle. This is almost too ridiculous uh, to bother dealing with, but I've heard it three or four times, including from people running for president. Uh, this was terrorism. Terrorism is asymmetrical warfare. Terrorism is what you do when you cannot invade and conquer a country. The fact that it is terrorism is a sign of ISIS's weakness and that it is not an uh, uh, existential struggle. Um, it's quite interesting to me that the French have got a three-month state of emergency, which gives the government the power to um, arrest you without a warrant, um, put you under <coughs> house arrest without judicial procedure, tap your phone without a warrant, um, this would be a lot easier uh, for a French president to do than for a British prime minister or an American president, but I think the danger is in overreacting. Um, three, ISIS is not Islamic. Uh, yes, it is, I'm afraid. Um, it may be a narrow and some would say perverted view of Islam, but they know their Quran. Uh, even if you take some of the most abhorrent practices of ISIS, such as sex slavery, they have Quranic authority for it. I was a couple of months ago in northern Iraq interviewing uh, a young woman, 16 years old, who'd been sold as a sex slave to a 60-year-old man. Um, he took her home and handcuffed her, uh, took her clothes off, took his clothes off, and she was begging him, saying, you're old enough to be my father, think of me as a daughter, please don't touch me. And he said, this is my religion, this is in the Quran, and I will get credit with God for doing this. And then he raped her. Um, fourth point fourth impossible thing to believe. 
Assad was right all along. A lot of people are saying we backed the wrong side in the civil war. I want you to put yourself for just five minutes in, in the shoes of Syrian. Uh, 200,000 people have died in the Syrian civil war. 95% of them, with the civilians anyway, have been killed by barrel bombing and other things uh, in contravention of the laws of war carried out by the regime. It's also the case that the Assad regime has a long, long history of working with or manipulating Islamist fanatics. They did it in the Iraq war. And at the beginning of the uprising, in a very calculated move, Assad released many of the most hardline Islamists from his jails. He did that to get the enemy he wants, which is an enemy which would shore up his support among the Alawites and others. ISIS is partly the creation of the Assad regime. Uh, fifth thing, it's Obama's fault for leaving Iraq. Not quite. ISIS, or its forerunner, the Islamic State in Iraq, had pretty much been defeated when American troops left. Uh, their leaders had been killed. Abu Bakr Baghdadi is only the leader of ISIS today because um, the then leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq was taken out by the Iraqis working in concert with American special forces. What revived uh, the Islamic State, ISIS, was the Syrian civil war. And you can argue that we should have intervened earlier in the Syrian civil war. I think there's a case to be made on both sides. Number six, we can bomb them back into the Stone Age. Killing some Arabs, as somebody said to me yesterday, may make us feel good. It is certainly a political necessity for President Hollande, but it is ineffective and it is counterproductive. One example of how ineffective it is, in January there was a massive airstrike on al-Bab, which is one of the main centres of ISIS. Uh, I'm sure that to American military planners, what they were bombing looked like a barracks. There were soldiers outside, there were armed men going in and out. It turned out to be the prison in al-Bab, and most of the 90 bodies pulled from the rubble would therefore have been opponents of ISIS. Uh, it's counterproductive, uh, because ISIS in Iraq and Syria is a coalition of foreign fighters who've come in in a semi-colonial relationship with the Sunni tribes who have sworn allegiance to them for a variety of reasons to do with self-protection, to do with being bribed. If you want to defeat ISIS, you have to break off the Sunni tribes from the foreign fighters and bombing them in their homes is not the way to do that. Uh, people may disagree with my mini-analysis on those six points, but I throw them out there for debate. Thank you, Paul. So. Um, Again, uh, students first on the questions, and if you could please uh, <coughs> identify yourself if you have a question. Please. Uh, excuse me, Aaron Myron, I'm an NPP thinking of school. Um, I'm interested in how the recent Paris attacks are going to change the dynamic in the European Union and how you think the different European news agencies are going to continue to cover migration um, as a result. Shall I, shall I take this on? Um, He's looking at you. <laughs> I, I, think the, uh, I think that the, certainly in France, and maybe Marie should comment, um, it, it, it will galvanize the French press to um, take a pretty tough-minded view um, uh, of, of what ought to be done and how these issues should be covered. I, I, uh, the migration obviously is is a hot issue in 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 Europe. A number of countries have said they won't take any migrants, um, uh, and you might see more countries saying that going forward. Um, it'll increase the amount of coverage. It'll uh, give opportunities to journalists to um, uh, make their name, uh, but I don't think it will change. Um, the basic 
coverage uh, because most of Europe has pretty open press and there'll be plenty of debate over what to do going forward. But Marie, what do you think? Well, yes, of course there is a lot of debate, but uh, you know, you, you just have to look at the reality of the facts which are going on right now and that's what they're doing. Um, I understand that the European Union is getting uh, all kinds of uh, plans to to fight actor, actually. The, the refugees are, are not even in the equation yet because uh, there has been a lot of resistance for their acceptance in big numbers in Europe, as we've seen, and particularly in France. Um, not so much in Germany, but it seems that now that Germany is also realizing that perhaps they were a bit uh, uh, too too generous. So uh, it's not. Uh, I think the U the U.S. I mean, we saw yesterday the the states, uh, the difference between Democratic governors, uh, Republican governors, like in Massachusetts, who just refused to to welcome uh, Syrian uh, refugees uh, until further further what, you know, because they have to, to screen and scrutinize all these people. But, uh, but that is the big problem, actually, because the refugees, the ones who arrive in Lesbos or all these islands with their family, babies, children who are drowning, <coughs> it's difficult to understand that these people would not, meet, would not be accepted because they are Syrians, where they are precisely fleeing Syria. I think it's really a difficult question. Yeah, it's deeply unfair. In World War II, some dimwit in officialdom ordered that all German Jews be rounded up in Britain because they were German. So I think a lot of the refugees are in exactly similar position. Mm. I was interviewing an 18-year-old woman on the Syrian-Turkish border in early August. She'd been part of a, an underground anti-ISIS cell in a town called Deir Azur. Her and uh, a female dentist had decided to go around spraying anti-ISIS slogans, which is uh, to risk death in Deir Azur. Of course, they got caught. Uh, the 18-year-old was tortured into confessing and giving up the others in the cell and managed, I don't know how, to be released. The 40-year-old woman, because she was not married, uh, was condemned for fornication and stoned to death. So it's deeply unfair because um, this 18-year-old uh, wants to go to Germany. Very, very slim chance he's actually going to be able to get to go to Germany. And I think most, most of the security risk is from uh, people who were in Western countries, went to Syria, got trained and came back. Um, British security services think that 750 Brits went to Syria, some 350 have returned. And I know that from academic studies of radicalization that have been done in Britain very recently, people think that between 10 uh, and 25% of those people who return are a serious security risk. They already have British passports. Please. I'd like to ask about Russia and sort of Russia-Ukraine and Russian propaganda. I know, David, you mentioned in your presentation about Russia today having a very small audience, but um, how, do you, how do you combat something like that when it seems like you're always in, in reaction mode? There's some story that's at truth, half-truth about what's going on and what the Ukrainians are doing. And I'm just wondering, you know, how, what's the most effective way to combat that, especially when it's directed towards in a lot of cases, France and Germany and other countries in Europe to sort of reduce their will to act. I mean, you, if you look at Russian media, you have to divide it into half. Uh, there's the domestic media. And uh, Putin has an 85% approval rating, or did recently. 
um, he has closed out all the media that, that aren't controlled by the Kremlin. Under Yeltsin, and I used to be in, I used to live in Moscow, there were all kinds of media, Voice of America and others, BBC, were on the air on, on Russian stations doing programs or uh, uh, participating in programs. Uh, Putin closed all that down. The Kremlin media is very effective and very dishonest. Um, uh, I, I haven't got the data in front of me here, but, but we saw in, in working on this paper that some incredibly high percentage of the Russian people believe that, um, that the Malaysian air jet was brought down by, Ukrainian, uh, by the Ukrainian government on purpose, uh, because that is what the domestic Russian media are telling them. Um, RT, however, is an outward-facing uh, uh, broadcasting effort by the Russians. And what I'm saying in my paper and here is not a particularly successful one when you look at how much money they've spent. Uh, not nearly as successful as they claim it is. Um, what I think it probably tries to do, because I actually don't think they really try, they don't think they really expect to be believed, given the kinds of conspiracy theories they spin up. I think the idea is just to, to create smoke, to create confusion in a multimedia world where there's so many different voices to create doubt about the central narrative. If the central narrative is that, well, the missiles look like they were Russian-made and they came from a town that looks like it's controlled by Russian-backed rebels, then put in five or six other stories to create some element of doubt. And in that, it may be that RT has been uh, successful in its mission, a rather more limited mission but nonetheless one that should concern us. The way to answer uh, the Russians for Voice of America, BBC, and others is to broadcast truthful, honest journalism that shows what the facts are as we know them that are best backed up with, with evidence, um, and to do that on any platform we can get. If we can't get into Russia uh, by television and radio, we certainly can by, by Internet. Uh, uh, the Russians are very, very good with new media. Um, I just was happy to see yesterday the new VOA numbers show that the, a new show called Nestayashi Vremia, current time, uh, it's a television show daily that went on the air after Crimea, um, and we knew it wouldn't get into Russia, wouldn't be allowed into Russia, is nonetheless seen daily by two million Russians because it's, it's, uh, it's, being, um, uh, uh, it's, being, it's on the Internet and you can watch it in real time that way. And also because an increasing number of Russians are buying satellite dishes and setting them up on their balcony or in their backyard, much as many Iranians and Chinese already have been doing. So satellite TV is another way to reach them. So you've got to do what you can. Meanwhile, the show is also seen in Moldova, Lithuania, Ukraine, and so forth. Um, I guess that's the answer, best as I can do. It's not, it's not ideal. The, 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 uh, the Russian space, I mean, Russians are being lied to and they are believing it. Floor is open, please. Yeah, so um, all three of you are, are kind of getting towards this information element of power, right? So you have diplomatic information, military economic, and information kind of straddles both the diplomatic <coughs> and the military. But you've got like the State Department has 1% of the budget. Most of the broadcasting you're talking about comes under the State Department, they already don't have enough money, and they don't, there's not a big belief in information that will power there, or in the military in a lot of ways. Um, I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't introduce myself, I'm a national security fellow here, my name is Scott Thompson. Um, how do we have this conversation with Congress about rebalancing the budget to put this where it needs to be? If we're sitting in the information age and 
Uh, David, you and I talked about this before. We got rid of the USIA right at the dawn of the information age. You know, we, we just somehow got this completely wrong. I'm afraid. How, how do you push Congress back towards us and say, I mean, we're for 20 years into this, and we're, we're still not budgeting in accordance with the rhetoric that, that everyone's aware of? There's a hearing at 2.30 this afternoon in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Chairman Corker is holding it on the future <coughs> of international broadcasting. I'll be watching on my, on my laptop. Um, and this very subject will be, will be discussed uh, by witnesses both from the Broadcasting Board of Governors and I think from some other places as well. Um, look, it's, 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 we've, we've, we're good at hard power as a country, or at least we, we, uh, we certainly have a, a well-resourced uh, well, um, military, and it does a fantastic job at what it's assigned to do. But um, we don't seem to understand well enough that, that to persuade people and to have influence in the world requires much more than, than that. Um, I, I'm not, I'm, that's one of the reasons I'm here and doing this paper and writing about it, is to try to convince people to think about soft power more seriously. Um, but there are, I, I mean, when, when Islamists were, were, were marching south in Mali a year or two ago, uh, and I got a call from the White House saying, you know, what can VOA do about this? I partnered up with some people in the Pentagon who were also trying to figure it out. And we were able to um, get a, 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 um, a new service on the air in the Bambara language, which is the dominant language of the country of Mali, which suddenly expanded the number of people who had reliable information in the country because French are previous broadcasts at Albany in French, only covers about 15% of the population. So I was able to work with folks in the Pentagon who had a common interest in reassuring the population, informing them, and so forth, uh, temporarily to do something like that. Um, that service continues to exist without any assistance from any other budgets, and um, I think it's a very well worthwhile thing for Mali, uh, which, you know, has reassured the people there. Of course, there has to be a military component, and I think the French have played the largest role there in terms of what, what Mali needed to well, well, there does stabilize itself. Well, between state and, and the military, depending on kind of the level of conflict, right, whether, whether they've got a, a task force established in a country or not, and who runs that. And it ends up being very reactive. So, for example, today, Frontline's releasing uh, a new documentary that's showing radicalization of youth in, in Afghanistan by ISIS. I mean, they're training kids on weapons that are four years old. So this is a multi-generational problem. Reactive doesn't get it. And so I'm just, I'm not sure if there's a way to push that inside the policy circle. One of the reasons I, uh, I, I took the job as VOA director was because I was so impressed with the way that VOA was, uh, the influence that VOA had in Afghanistan. More than half the country watches the, the, the television evening news and listens to the radio that Voice of America broadcasts in Dari and Pashto in Afghanistan. It's a very good broadcast done by Afghans, Afghan-Americans, um, and it has tremendous influence. It reassures the country. It's a sort of central place where everybody, a set of facts that everybody takes on board. And I just think it's tremendously influential. Unfortunately, there are keep being proposals to cut the budget of that effort. Um, well, we're, our troops are leaving out, so let's, I mean, I think when the troops are drawing down is exactly when you need to, if anything, increase the effort to keep people informed and reassure them. Um, but uh, it's something that our country needs to get its head around, I think. 
Yeah, Robert. Mm -hmm. And then I'm Robert Smith, a sociologist, beginning to study a little bit about jihadism <coughs> using agent-based simulation models. Um, I'm not an expert on this by any means, but it occurred to me that a strategy for soft power would be to try to juxtapose the actions of the jihadists against the moral aspects of the Quran. The Quran, I'm told, is rather widespread in its beliefs. They pick out ones that justify their behavior. Do we pick out similar kinds of statements from the Quran to attack their rationalizations? Because these people seem to be religious, but their religion is really not the religion of Islam, presumably. So you're looking at me, but I think I'm, I'd like to duck this one and refer it to Paul, if I could, because I think it's more his. Thanks. <laughs> yes and no. Um, two young guys were arrested going from Birmingham to Syria to fight, and they had in their knapsacks Islam for dummies. Um, ISIS, it's, it's one of the kind of peculiar aspects of the most extreme extremists. They don't actually know Islam that well. Uh, there is a crisis of Muslim youth around the Arab world, and ISIS speaks very loudly to that, especially if uh, you're a Muslim youth in Bradford or Brussels or something like that. Um, often it's about rebellion. You're a second-generation Muslim, and the first people you're rebelling against is your parents, and what would really, really upset them is for you to become a Salafi jihadi. I'm not kidding, that is the motivation of some people. I met a young man called Abayd uh, a couple of years ago on the Syrian-Turkish border. He was absolutely typical uh, of the few ISIS recruits that I've come across in that he'd been a petty criminal before. He'd been in a northern English town, stealing cars, running prostitutes, generally upsetting his parents, belonging to a street gang of criminals. And it's only a small exaggeration to say that ISIS was the next criminal gang that he had joined. He wasn't very competent. He didn't know one end of the Kalashnikov from another. But he accidentally joined uh, a group uh, called the Emigrants, run by uh, a Chechen jihadi, which is just about the most vicious jihadi group in Syria at the time. The guy who led it was credited with 300 beheadings, and then it, it joined ISIS. Um, I, I always divided the young jihadis into um, the gangsters and the true believers. Um, the gangsters were people like Abayd who would go uh, for what I would call jihad summer holiday and get some jihadi street cred and then go back to Bradford or Leeds or wherever uh, and be a more credible figure on the street. You, then you had the true believers who got into the religion um, and I talked to another young jihadi called Abu Samaya al-Britani who was just full of anger uh, against the West, a place where he'd been born, he'd been born in England. Um, and. Uh, was lobbying to go up the list of potential suicide bombers. Uh, after we broadcast the interview, um, about three weeks later, ISIS announced that he had in fact become the first British suicide bomber in Iraq, which is rather chilling. I thought perhaps they'd, they'd heard our interview. Um, so what is to be done, which was your question, uh, I think our biggest failure in Iraq or any conflict you want to name is failing to empathize with our enemies. And I think Having more VOA or the BBC would be great, but um, you speak to these young jihadis, they hate the BBC, it's, it's the enemy broadcaster. 
you have to get people of their age, their class, their outlook to speak to them in their language on their outlets, which will be things not even like Twitter anymore, but sort of messaging platforms like Telegram. Telegram. Um, so that's how to do it. Um, but I think that we're dealing with such massive, massive dissatisfaction for a number of reasons. It, it isn't a quick fix, and it isn't getting some imam to say, actually, the real Islam is this. There are so many different reasons for people joining these groups. I'd like you to uh, elaborate a bit on your last point, because just yesterday afternoon at the MEI seminar, uh, uh, Rami Koran put out at least three of the, your points that you think are uh, outrageous, and I don't disagree with you. Mm -hmm. But then he was upbraided by the leader of the seminar for not saying that it was all Bush's fault in Iraq to the applause of the audience, by the way. So if you, because that is almost accepted wisdom here, maybe it would be good if you stand on that. I mean, just factually, uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, under whatever name, there's been various iterations of Salafi jihadism, was flat on its back in 2010. It was finished. And then they sent 12 guys, just 12 guys, this is like a Leninist organization, to Syria and took advantage of the chaos there. And then Syria became a magnet for people all over the Arab world who had these beliefs. I was hanging out with various armed groups at the beginning of, of when the protests were becoming an armed uprising. And hardly a week went by without some emissary with a suitcase full of cash from the Muslim Brotherhood, from Al-Qaeda in Iraq, from some Saudi mosque who'd come and say, swear allegiance to us, carry on doing what you're doing, we won't interfere, we'll just claim your victory as ours. There was a kind of bidding war for armed groups at the beginning. So out of the chaos of... Uh, what was Syria came what we know as ISIS. I'll give you one brief example. Uh, there was a town called Qusair that we always used to go through. It was the first place after Lebanon and Syria. There were two rival FSA commanders. There always were rival FSA commanders. One of them was a sort of handsome young guy called Abu Walid. All the women wanted to marry him. It's a very charismatic figure. And I was sitting with him one day and across his radio came a message that people were starting to kidnap Christians in Qusair. It's a 25% Christian. He leapt up with his men, sort of he had 50 men in his brigade, uh, and calmed the situation down, got the people who'd been kidnapped, took them back to their homes, told people to stop kidnapping Christians, and probably stopped a sectarian massacre in Qusair. FSA was chased out of Qusair by a coalition of the Syrian army and Hezbollah. Um, he was chased up into the hills. His men were literally starving. And then two years after rejecting the initial uh, advance by ISIS, as it had now become, some guy arrives with a suitcase full of money and says, all you have to do is swear allegiance to ISIS. You get to keep your brigade, but you can feed your men. So he took the money, he swore allegiance, and in January of this year, he was killed assaulting a Christian village, Ras Baalbek, in Lebanon, leading that assault. And that process has happened to many, many fighters in Syria. Please. Thank you so much. I'm Ananta Giri from India, visitor here. Now, my first query to Paul, that you refer to the predicament of the Second World War. And at that moment, there was a need for a broad coalition of forces. Now, the, the current predicament, in terms of terrorism you know, coming from this crisis, what is the prospect of a broad coalition of forces, you know, both fighting on the ground as well as to do the broader intellectual work, the spiritual work of addressing the misuse of religion for killing apparatus. 
My query to you, sir, is. Can we do one question, please? Shall I try that? Try, try that one because yeah. I could. Let's oh, just no. do one question, and then okay, maybe. Okay. I mean, uh, <coughs> I saw many of you may have seen Secretary Kerry on the television this morning, saying that he is working hard on putting together a coalition with the Russians um, uh, that would uh, th that would uh, go after ISIS as the first target. Put aside Assad, maybe for the moment. And, and he thinks that there's reasonable chances of putting together um, a grand coalition, as you called it, um, in, in, in pursuit of that goal, given what happened to the Russian airliner and so forth. Um, I don't think it's going to be easy, but maybe there is that possibility. Um, uh, it is, it, that is the open goal of the, of the Obama administration now, to try to, try to achieve that. Um, but in terms of the, the deeper question of, of the, the spiritual side or the, the, the ideological side, do, do either of you have any thoughts? <laughs> I, I don't know about that, just briefly. Um, it feels like a 9-11 moment. Clearly a lot of people are going to start bombing Syria and Iraq. There seems to be no appetite for ground forces, um, which may be, in the end, what is needed. Uh, there was a village called Sadia, um, which I was on the outskirts of last year. And it was kind of typical in that 150 150-odd foreign fighters arrived, and they got the local Sunni uh, tribal leader to swear allegiance to ISIS. He had 650 armed men. So suddenly your ISIS force was 800. What are you going to do? You're going to kill all 800? You're going to bomb that village into dust? Or are you going to go in there and do what the Americans did slowly and painstakingly over 10 years in Iraq, which is to buy people off, to, to, to give people money, literally, to change sides again. I think that's the only rational strategy for dealing with ISIS on the ground, to break off those foreign fighters uh, and to say to the people who are there already, who have, from their point of view, pretty logical reasons for joining ISIS, namely, there's a Shiite militia down the road who's going to come in and rape their women, kill lots of people, fill up some mass graves, and then leave again. So you have to, kind of, you have to empathize with your enemies if you want to, if you want to beat them. Um, Mike Egan, I'm one of the National Security Fellows. Um, you know, Osama bin Laden famously talked about the strong horse and the, the weak horse, right? When people see the strong horse, that's the one they like. And we talked a little bit about the, these second generation immigrants you know, looking for something to, you know, something to believe in. So I, I guess the question is, do they see the ISIS brand of Islam as the strong horse, and that's why they like it, and how do we, you know, I don't really see the, the moderate Islam that we say we want to support, you know, the mullahs on airplanes thing, for example. Um, you know, we said we flew around, get them to expose to the moderate version of, of Islam. I guess the question is, does, does that, does the U.S. endorsing this essentially delegitimize that brand of Islam in the eyes of people who are seeing the other as more authentic for whatever reason, if the United States, the BBC, or whatever, the England are the enemy, if we're endorsing them, does it just make it even more of the weak horse? It has to be propped up by these outside powers and make it more open for ridicule by ISIS, you know, to say, oh yeah, the noted Islamic scholars, uh, Obama and Kerry, say that this is Islam and, well, we say it's not. So I guess how do we address those sort of problems in you know, trying to... Well, I mean, first of all, information policy, communication policy 
can't do it all by itself. You can't put, uh, you know, lipstick on a pig and, and make it something else. Um, American policy has to have many different aspects to it. Western policy, French policy has to. Um, these problems that are, that are expressing themselves in the ISIS outbursts are, are deep and, and they have uh, many different aspects to them that we as Western societies need to confront. And we're looking at it. Patience is required here. We're, we, sh we should engage, I think, in many different ways, all the way from the military to, to, to the journalistic. Um, and you're looking at a long-term project here. These societies have many problems. Um, I don't, it, untying the knot in Syria is going to take uh, smarter people than I am, that's for sure. Um, so uh, information policy can't by itself do much. But we should do everything we can in that area, and there's much more we could be doing. I, for example, um, believe that uh, we should, that, that, that there should be a Voice of America that's better funded and that uses what's been working for the last four years or so. A large piece of the 40% increase, and that's been in Muslim countries as well, like Indonesia, has been because VOA has partnered up with local, good local stations and said, you know, let us help you. Uh, we can cover Washington for you. We can uh, cover other international stories for you that you can't afford to be at. And as a result, sometimes they're on the air with millions listening and viewing them that they didn't have before without actually spending much more money. So there's lots of new ways that are coming up. In northern Nigeria, where um, our shortwave radio audience in Hausa is, is dropping, um, the new mobile app in Hausa is, has two million new users in the last year. Um, so we've got to stay on the right platforms and stay with the changes in media that are happening all around us. It's, in fact, a period of incredible opportunity in the communication sphere. Um, and I think our country ought to be taking advantage of that more than it is. It does require some more resources. I, I think, yeah. um, Tom Oh, I didn't see your hand. So when I look over there, if you get your hand up, it's a little hard to, okay. We'll get, you, yeah. Okay, uh, Tom Dans, I'm an advanced leadership fellow here. Um, question is, uh, how do you all feel about English as a, as a soft tool of soft power? Um, and I mean that respectfully, Marie, but it seems it's to me okay. that it's okay. French. French is international. Language, especially instruction at the elementary level, would fight off a lot of this spread of ideas, and you could really get a stronger footing on that. Uh, I think, I think for both the United States and for the United Kingdom, English is, an, is a soft power asset. People want to learn English. It's the international language of business and commerce and many other things. Um, we teach English on the air at Voice of America. I think the BBC has some programs as well. Uh, you can make money teaching English uh, in this world. We do it for free. Yes, it's a, it's a wonderful asset. but. Um, People sometimes argue, I've, there are people within the administration who have recently argued that VOA should, instead of doing 45 or 50 languages and being in Bambara, should just go down to about five or six and really focus and put all your money into those and then English would be really big. Uh, uh, and to them I say, mistake. Um, 
from VOA's from VOA's point of view, the biggest English language broadcaster on earth, and they kind of are the best, is the BBC World Service. They're excellent. There's no need to duplicate what they do. There are certain kinds of programming in English, particularly aimed at African audiences, because there's a big English-speaking audience in Africa that VOA does, and I think there's a tremendous amount of exciting new stuff we can do there. I like English. I like teaching English on the air. I see it as an asset for our country. But there's no need for us to duplicate the BBC or CNN International. Uh, we should do what's needed and useful in languages uh, where they make a difference for national security purposes, like Kurdish or Arabic or Russian or Chinese or Persian. Um, I actually think those are higher priorities than English. But I love English, you know. So let's have your question if we could. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I just wondered what you're doing, specifically the VOA and the, the World Service, to like leverage the power that you've got when you go into these countries and like work with local partners and try and build like independent capacity rather than just going over there and delivering a very popular service, which might be great, but might also sort of crowd the market out. Both the BBC and VOA do a lot of training of journalists. Um, which is incredibly popular and I wish we had more money to do it because it's really a great way of engaging with, with societies and journalists are not unimportant in many countries uh, including this one um, so so reaching out to them helping them with the skills uh, is an incredibly valuable thing uh, uh, an aspect of soft power I greatly believe in and wish we had more money to do more of that said these partnerships that I talked about I mean our audience in Latin America Voice America's audience in the last four years has gone from 3 million to over 26 million just by partnering up with stations and saying, look, uh, TV Azteca Mexico, you got a nice audience there, 6 million a night, that's great. You know, we can't uh, duplicate that, nor do we wish to. But we notice you don't cover Washington much. You, you weren't in Rome when the, Pope's, uh, the new pope was chosen. We were. Would you like to partner up with us and use our journalists on your air? And as a result, now we're on the conference call in the morning with TV Azteca Mexico, and we're on their air every night. They benefit, Mexico benefits, and the United States gets to be part of the conversation in Mexican living rooms, which is terrific. So I think there's a lot of ways we can collaborate. And that model, which works so well in Mexico and Nigeria and uh, Ukraine and various other places, should be used in many more parts, places around the world. But it's a resource question. Um, I wanted to ask or go back to something, Marie, that you had mentioned, which is this problem of alienation. And Paul even mentioned it, talking about um, some of the fighters who are really just rebelling against their parents. Um, and Paris has had this problem, especially, especially its outskirts are notoriously people of immigrants and people that have moved to France. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't see the problem across Europe getting better. Um, the migrant crisis. The refugee crisis has uh, undercut governments that are more pragmatic, especially Angela Merkel. Um, and now this Paris attack uh, will probably do the same. So I don't know if you guys have any comments or thoughts on how we move forward and how we get away from this problem. Well, in France, um, the, the Muslim community is one is uh, almost 7 million people. And it's, I think, uh, one of the largest in Europe. And this is a community which has been living in France for many generations. The 
after the the war uh, of independence with Algeria, there were a lot of migrants who came to work in the French factories, particularly uh, car factories and all that. So the 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 problem is 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 old because actually of these uh, workers, uh, this uh, you know, have they been integrated well enough in the French society? And their kids, have they been accepted? And that's the big debate in France because, as you, as you were pointing out, they were sort of strategically living in, in, in suburbs uh, and not at all sort of cut off of the, of the main city. Like in uh, Paris, you have all this uh, department, uh, which is you know, where you had riots about 10 years ago. Uh, Lyon also has a big uh, Muslim community, which, which became, and particularly the younger generations, disaffected, uh, <coughs> you know, feeling they don't belong. And then the, I think there is an attraction, a seduction about these ideologies that promise them something that they cannot get, even and uh, sad to say, but it's true in France, even if some of the of, of these kids go to very good schools or have brilliant uh, grades and are very professional, there is still a stigma if your name uh, Mohammed or, you know, that, that is a reality. So, so it, I th that's why I was saying at, at the beginning that I think it's for government to, to, to also see what they can do. I mean, I don't know if sending, you know, a police uh, on every street of these uh, suburbs is going to do something better because so far nothing has worked at the beginning they used to have what they called um, police de proximité which is people you know who are there but without weapons uh, talking trying to solve the you know petty problems of uh, uh, drugs and stuff like that but with this situation now I don't know because three of these attackers in Paris were French uh, second or third generation French so I don't have any answer. I'll be brief because it's one o'clock. I mean, clearly we've got a problem. A country like Sweden, with the highest number of Muslim immigrants, I think it's 16%, still has 60% unemployment by the time we get to the second generation. So we have got a problem in integrating people who come to our countries, and maybe that's our fault. But a lot of the young jihadis I've spoken to were middle-class kids, and there's a civil war going on within Sunni Islam, and it's a very powerful appeal by ISIS and other Salafi jihadi groups to say, we are the true Islam, we are the real Islam. And by the way, a comfortable life is pretty boring. Isn't it more interesting to pick up a gun and fight? That is an appeal of radical political movements down through the ages, and that is also ISIS's appeal, which is very hard to combat. So we're almost out of time. Um, I'd like to do a little bit of Cuba. <laughs> well, Cuba seems so, so I, far away. Well, let me ask you a question about Cuba. So I, I think I understand a little bit about the Cuban-American community's reaction. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, certainly there's a generational divide. Um, what can you tell us about the Cuban public's likely reaction to this? The, the Cubans? The change. The, the Cubans ordinary, in Cuba? Ordinary, ordinary Cuban. In Cuba? Yeah, in Cuba. Well, I think they're delighted by the change. I mean, you, you yeah. mean the normalization yeah. of their relations yeah. right. with, with yeah. the U.S.? Of course. They want to be in the world. And, and so far, Cuba has been always looking 
at the past and never at the present. I mean, when you read the Cuban press, even as it is today, the official newspaper, Gramma, Juventud Rebelde, and all that, the, the first, uh, you know, they always refer on every day of the week to some event of the revolution that happened in 59, or, and they have a quote of Jose Marti, and we are in 2015. So, yes, uh, this, this cannot last much longer, and uh, Raul Castro is 84. So I think that generation, which is very much still in power, uh, has to give way, and I think the it's not only the Americans who wanted to normalize, I think the Cubans wanted to, because it provides the regime as it is some time to go towards a transition that will be orderly, because what everybody was fearing is a sudden demise or death of Fidel Castro, and then what? Because there is no, there are no other parties, there are no other leaders than the Castro brothers, and perhaps if Raul Castro is true to his word, that is that he will leave power in 2018, then there will not be another Castro in a Cuban government. And that's for the, for the Cuban, it's, it will be really a change. Because uh, even with the normalization, you see a lot of people fleeing the island right now and risking it all uh, on boats, uh, boats and stuff like that, yeah. And, and it's an opening to business, to, 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 to modernity, Airbnb, uh, Netflix, uh, ferries resuming the traffic with Miami, which was interrupted for 50 years. I mean, before the, 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 the revolution, Miami was, uh, you know, the, the, the place where everybody went uh, for weekends or whatever. There were shuttle flights, Miami, Havana, ferries uh, all the time. And then they were cut off for 50 years. So I think that's the appeal. It's the, the nostalgia of the 50s for a lot of tourists who want to go to Cuba. <laughs> but uh, for the Cubans, I think they would happily be in 2015. Ray Sands, David Enser, Paul Wood, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.